Hello, and welcome to Slice of Wine, the podcast that gives you snippets of the people, places, and innovations behind the barrel. I'm your host, Amy Cronin, and today I'm here with the inimitable Gary Fish. He's the founder and owner of Gary's Wine Marketplace, a prominent retail destination that started in 1987 and has grown to four locations in northern New Jersey, as well as a newer shop in St. Helena. Gary has been lauded for consummate innovation and remaining community-centric through its growth, um, among many other things. And uh, Gary, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. It's great to be on this morning. Yes. Well, it's nice to be on the West Coast where there's not snow. <laughs> it's a beautiful day here. Although we're supposed to get a little rain, but uh, I don't believe that. Yeah, yeah. And it's like cry you over it. You, you need a little anyway. <laughs> well, so first of all, Gary, people can't seem to stop giving you guys awards. <laughs> like best overall wine selection from wine enthusiasts, top 10 wine shop from food and wine. I don't know how many times Beverage Dynamics has given you retailer of the year, but it feels like it's been many years and the list keeps going on. So I guess my question to you is, um, has it always been this way? Did it just start out like this? Uh, how did you get started? What was it like? No, uh, first of all, thanks for mentioning that. It's, you know, we're always honored and humbled by the, you know, acclaim that we've gotten. And it doesn't come without a lot of hard work by a lot of people. You know, as we've grown, everything's changed. The industry's changed. We've changed as people. Uh, so we keep, as you would say, innovating and changing. Uh, which has caused uh, these accolades to come our way, which is always very exciting. Um, I'm not sure I answered your question, but, you know. What was it like back in the day? Was it like this? Was it always like this? When did, like, when, how did you get started in this thing? Oh, that's a long story. That's a long time ago. You know, I was, uh, when I, I graduated college in, in a long time ago and got a degree in political science and a minor in English, which back then was very employable by nobody <laughs> still is so that's <laughs> it's still employable probably now it was a great degree i learned a lot in in, in school but I, I i was not preparing for a job and my father was a liquor salesman so uh when i graduated college i started selling liquor which was a horribly uh humbling experience it was terrible you know they gave me all and that still stuff. is too yeah so yeah <laughs> Selling, especially cold calling, was not, I mean, it was, you know, I'd walk into an account thinking that I knew something, which I really didn't know. They didn't train you back then. I had my briefcase in my book and they would say, I'll take a case of something. I don't even know if we carried it. I'd say, yeah, okay. And I'd write it down. I'd go in the car, I'd look through the book and we didn't even carry it. I'd go back in and say, you know, I, I don't carry that. Can I have those three boxes and napkins I gave you back? <laughs> uh, uh, but fast forward my first full year uh, at the end of it um, there was a vacation in August and I went to Napa Valley I was actually meeting a buddy in San Francisco who was an accountant and said if we go to Napa you can write off your entire trip so I said oh, I'll go to Napa and write off my trip and we only had one Napa winery at that point and there were only it was 1979 uh, it was Louis Martini uh, so in 1979, I came and visited uh, Louis Martini Winery, 
and I'm coming to see the CEO of Louis Martini Winery, and a farmer greets me. And I had no idea that grapes were really an agricultural product and that a farmer would be the owner of the winery. You know, I, I, my first visit was to Manischewitz in Brooklyn, and there were no grapes or winemakers, you know, and so it was crazy. And he took me around. We, he, it was harvest, so he had me taste grapes that were just coming in on the trucks, and they were tractor trailers. That was a different world back then. We went in a cellar, and I tasted probably 20 varietals he had, Barbera, Riesling, Dry Riesling, Sweet Riesling, Pinot Chardonnay, Cabernet. Chardonnay? Yeah, it was called Pinot Chardonnay. Uh, so I fell in love with the concept of selling my friend Louis Martini's wine. And I came back to New Jersey determined to sell my friend's wine. And so I took all the wine classes. I took Kevin Zarelli's Windows of the World a few times, um, a bunch of other stuff. And then nobody sold California wine in New Jersey. So we had contests every year and I sold 50 cases of martini wine and every year I came out. So every year I got more re-energized and learned more. So by the time I was in my early 20s, I knew a lot about wine and I, w I just loved it and I loved selling it. So that's kind of how it began. So then how did you get a liquor license? So you're you're selling Louis Martini's wine through the distributor you're working with. Yeah, I work for, yeah, I work for a wholesaler and one of my accounts had a tiny store and uh, for many reasons he needed to sell it and he couldn't take it back because of the ABC. So he, he asked me if I'd be interested because it was a good wine shop. He thought it could become a good wine shop. And so we literally went out on the, on the lamb, so to speak, and, and borrowed money. And he made the payments long enough so that we could afford to pay it based upon what he thought we would do. And in 1987, we, I literally jumped ship and started working in our retail store. So, and it was only seven days a week open to close. So it really wasn't that hard. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> um, well, no, and the, actually, that's a very good point because running any business comes with, you know, it's a lot of work and, and it comes with some challenges, but running a retail business comes with an extra set of challenges and, you know, including things that are not glamorous, like, like thievery, you know, have you ever had experiences with that? And how did you, <laughs> how, how did you handle those well, it's funny that you should say that, and I'm glad uh, my wife is not near me because every time I tell the story, she gets upset. Um, in our Wayne store, which is our largest store, 24,000 square feet, uh, we, we have this beautiful wine room, which is to totally glass. Um, and so you could see in, and my wine buyer suggested that we put, uh, we have three bottles of Petra's left from the futures. So we got a future, we bought I don't, five cases of Petrus, we had three bottles left over. He said, why don't we put it in the wine room and we'll see what happens. So he puts it in on Friday, comes in Monday, uh, comes in Tuesday and it's gone. And one bottle's missing. So he says, great, we sold it, worked. He looks at sales history. Hmm, not there. No sales, no. Hmm. So we're, got, we're down one bottle. So we look on our cameras and we have a picture of a guy going in there and leaving, but with nothing. So we now have the picture of the guy. The next Monday, 
he checks. We're now one bottle, no sales. So now somebody stole two bottles. This so is now a we fancy have, thief, by the way. This, this is a thief with good taste. Yeah. Uh, he, 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 and this time we saw him go in, he brought a basket in, he put a lot of wine in the basket. Then he took the one bottle of Petrus out of the basket, uh, was holding it, walked around, dropped the basket and just literally put the, and um, walked out of the store. And the first time he was in a uh, rent-a-car and the second time he was in a, um, a taxi. So a week later, I'm getting ready to leave and we have his picture up everywhere. So I saw this guy come in and I'm like, oh my God, you know, it's the same guy. He's got a hat on, last time he didn't, he's got sunglasses, you know, but it was the same guy. So we had a, um, a security guy working for us, you know, internal security. And I, I, I had one of the kids go get him and I said, I'm gonna go outside. And if he's by taxi, I'm gonna pay the taxi to leave. So we have a chance to catch him. So as I'm standing outside, he come, He knows we made him. So he comes kind of charging out with my security guy. Now keep in mind, my security guys at that point was probably 70, uh, five, four, you know, uh, uh, ex-Marine, but ex-Marine a long time ago. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't the rock today. It's the rock in. Right. And so I see him running into the parking lot next to our not in our parking lot. So I said, oh, that's where the car is. So I could, I run after him. And then he jumps in the car and I assume he's a thief, not a murderer. So I stand behind the car and say, stop, you know, you're not leaving. And he jams on reverse. He puts the car in reverse. Oh my God. And now <laughs> I the there? only no, I did the only prudent thing possible. I jumped on the back of the car. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> now I'm holding onto the car and assuming he's going to stop. And now he's doing, you know, how the, you know, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And after like the third time, I'm like, this is not going to end well. I slid off the side of the car and I was very proud of myself because I nailed the landing. Yeah, that's really good. That's amazing. And that was all I remembered, except for then I saw the, they showed me the video of me then chasing the car down, the, trying to catch the car, it was, went on the highway. Um, fast forward, like 10 minutes later, I get in my car to go home because it was the end of the day and my wife calls me and says, so how was your day? I said, oh, great, how was your day? Never mentioned it. I get, I get home a few minutes before I say to my son, Mike, I said, uh, I told him what happened. He said, oh my God, that's crazy. I said, but mom called and I didn't tell her, what should I do? And he said, well, as soon as she comes in, you gotta fess up, you can't wait, you know? So I said, okay. So she walks in and I start to tell her, I'm like, where'd Michael go? You know, he was nowhere to be found. I went upstairs after we talked, he had the headphones on, music. He didn't, just in case, he didn't want to be a part of it. <laughs> He's like, mom is gonna flip. <laughs> yeah, she, she wasn't that happy. Fast forward about six months, we were in um, San Francisco for a, an event and he got caught stealing a Picasso in San Francisco. And so his name had come up and it was our guy. So we're at dinner and I remember distinctly Bruce Cakebread was there. And so the story came up, I told the story. He said, isn't Petrus Merlot? I said, yes. He said, well, would you jump on the back of a car for Cakebread Merlot? <laughs>
<laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> so your advice to other retailers um, would be... <laughs> let it go. Let it go. Let, let it go. Let it go. It was a dream. It was a terrible mistake. That's crazy. Was he drinking the wine or was he just like, was he trying to resell it? So it turned out he had worked for Per Se, I believe, as a psalm and then got fired or something. Oh, and the word was that um, somebody had gone, he lived in Hoboken for a while uh, and that there were always great empty bottles mm. of wine. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and, and Picasso's on his, uh, on his wall. <laughs> and then he has Picasso. Picasso. He was living My feeling is he probably met a really, really rich woman and wanted to have her fall in love with him and wanted to prove that he was of substance and figured he'd steal stuff. I don't know. That's kind of romantic. That's a nice way of thinking about it. Well, that's my novel, but yeah. I wanted to kill him. He could just be a so bad guy. I, <laughs> I mean, he kind of did try to kill you. <laughs> yeah. I, you know? I, I wouldn't put him in my I wouldn't put him in my friend list. No, 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 no. Um, oh, so, so kind of switching switching gears from um, near life death situation saving Merlot. Um, <laughs> um, you know, uh, you've been known for innovation, and a, a lot of people say you know like need breeds innovation. What would you kind of say were the bigger innovations that Gary's has had, and what was the driver behind them? Like, why'd you do it? Um, so I, I, I would, the best way to start is, you know, the most recent would be the pandemic, obviously, you know, and for everybody, it was either a catastrophe waiting to happen, depending on what business you're in or an opportunity. And as you said, you know, my, my son was going for his, working towards his MBA while the pandemic hit. So he was staying uh, with us and he was helping us with technology for our business and we just started a mobile app as, and I know you're, you're familiar with some of that and at the time the pandemic started we had like 2,000 people signed up for the mobile app which is nothing uh, and most of our business was retail and running through our website and I'll never forget the governor of New Jersey was going to announce what he was closing on. And so around March 17th, 18th, he said on Saturday the 21st, I'm going to announce what's closing. Well, our stores became bedlam. We were under the impression he would never close the liquor stores because New York wasn't going. And um, also there, there were issues. So we, we believed we were going to be kept open. Consumers didn't care. They came plowing in. So we were worried about the health and welfare of our teams. So Saturday morning we closed. We, when we closed Friday night, we didn't reopen. Uh, and we sent out emails and texts and uh, social media saying that we're open for only curbside pickup and local delivery. And thank God we had the mobile app in place. So did you have that in place, the curbside delivery, you were able to turn that on right away? So, so yeah, so what happened is we now were able to do all the curbside and local deliveries, but we didn't have the staff. So, so everything changed. And, and I remember one of the managers saying, we can't stock the shelves fast enough. And I said, stop stocking <laughs> the shelves. I said, you know, you have to think differently. You're no longer a retail store. We're fulfillment centers. 
So we went from, uh, and we were doing it from 10 to six. That's how we were open for curbside pickup. I said, just because we're open 10 to six for curbside, I want you to have teams coming in at five in the morning and I want the last team leaving at midnight. So we went to a three team oh, wow. like yeah. warehouse shift. This is shift. a warehouse now. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. We then also, we hired as many people as possible. We added, I think, about 70 to 100 people through the pandemic in New Jersey. And uh, Mike found from Marriott, they furloughed all their rewards people. So we hired about four or five Marriott rewards people and took our phone system offline because the stores couldn't answer all the phones. So all the calls went into the Marriott rewards people who became our, you know, that when you called the phone, called Gary's, the person you talked to was a professional service. So they could at least get the information yeah, and yeah. filter it. That's the best customer service yeah. any store has. I can't it was awesome. You know, our, the first week or two, the people were freaking out because we couldn't get delivery. And, and I was always like, well, of course, we're going to be behind schedule, you know, but suddenly having people to answer the phone um, that were professional. Uh, we went to Hertz because I heard that they were in trouble. We rented a dozen trucks from Hertz really inexpensively. Um, and so we we really upped our, our delivery game. Um, and we just went, you know, did everything we can do with the goal of getting orders filled first, worrying about profitability later, worrying about anything else. Let's, let's service the guest as best as possible. And when everything's over, we'll figure out if we made money or not. I mean, this like, you know, like getting the Marriott rewards, you know, team using the Hertz trucks, um, you know, flipping and saying, oh, my gosh, we're going to we're going to stay open. We're going to do these, you know, three shifts, all of this. I mean, you know, there are business owners and then there are just entrepreneurs, you know, the, and, and you you definitely fall in the later bucket. Um, <laughs> and entrepreneurs are not normal. <laughs> Like you, you have to like have a special, you know, you're a special breed, like, you know, because you're driven by something that other people, they, they just don't have that drive to make, you know, to go the extra mile. Have you always been like this? Like, was this, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I was a terrible student uh, you know, and I joke and I, I, I truly was, but I was always driven to be better and do better um whether it was you know when i was young I, I had a candy store in my garage that's a whole nother story so i was i've always been in retail um but i you know i, I talk to people and i look around our stores and i say it could be better no matter how good it is what can we do better you know could that guy's uniform look better uh are the shelves fronted um, do we have enough product? Do we have the right mix? So, so I've always been driven to, to be better than we were yesterday. No matter what yesterday was, we have to be better. And, and are be better. you a direct line? Like, you know, how are your stores operated? Are you, you, you're, you have a store out in California now, which we hardly even got to talk about, but it's amazing. If anyone is in the Napa Valley, they have to go to Gary's Napa Valley. Um, and, and you know, in four stores here, how are how are these stores run? Are you working directly with all of the store managers? Do, is there, you know, yeah, yeah. 
No, I mean, it's me and my son. I mean, Mike and I, you know, he he's more of the technology and stuff, but he's learning retail. He's overseeing HR. He's overseeing the finance side of it. Uh, we have weekly meetings with the, the GMs. Um, they're always texting me back and forth. So there's, it's a straight line of communication. Um, and I think that's the best. Um, Nap, I'm here a lot because it needs me more right now. It's still, it's the newest store and we've, we've had the exact opposite of New Jersey. It's tourist driven. So the first two years we've been open have been a, a, a challenge getting help um, and also um, doing business because of the pandemic. You, you've been in business for 35 years and, the, and you know, obviously the, 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 the COVID sort of era uh, was different for everybody. But, um, you know, did that teach you? I mean, like, you know, after being in business for 35 years, you're like, oh, my gosh, I think I've seen everything. Right. Um, did you learn anything? Do you feel like, you know, from that pandemic era that we're hopefully finally getting out of? Um, yeah, I, I guess. A decision making is crucial, and and it always has been. But the, and it's also the rapid pace in which you make decisions. And in some cases, you have to, whether the decision at that moment in time is right or wrong. You've made a decision, and then you figure out how to either monetize that decision or how to uh, make sure it works. And that's kind of what Michael and I did constantly. You know, we would see a problem, we'd figure out how to solve the problem. Frequently, that then caused a new problem. Uh, so, so then you, you, you solve the next problem. And, and so it's, it's operating quickly um, and trying to take care of people while you're doing it as much as possible um, so that people knew that we were, we were on their side. You know, we, we paid people more money. Um, if somebody was afraid to come in, we didn't fire them or dock them pay. You know, we, we tried very hard to take care of people as much as humanly possible. Amazing. Yeah. It's, um, and, and how do you think, um, you know, just sort of to, to, as sort of like a final, um, thought, what do you, what do you see in the next year? How do you think this is, uh, things are going to change and, um, how do you see business going and <laughs> any, any lens that you have? Does anybody have a lens? Well, yeah, the lens is yeah. it's foggy out there. Uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's real, you know, it's still going on. You know, the supply chain is not a joke. Um, obviously, with, you know, what's going, the horrifying stuff going on in the Ukraine, um, with, you know, which then how it affects oil pricing and stuff. But a human, you know, sacrifice is terrible. So you, you, I think people are thinking differently again. Um, and, and I believe that will be at least another year before the supply chain gets better. You know, we get less disruption. We have inventory, uh, vintage issues coming, you know, with certain regions, including, you know, the West Coast and uh, Willamette and Napa in particular that have had some issues. Um, so what we do as retailers, we buy where we can as fast as we can. So we're buying as much Napa Valley 18 and 19 Cabernets that we could find anywhere. Uh, we're back and we're buying a lot of Bordeaux. We're buying a lot of tuss. So we, so we just, we, we Sounds have like a lot of Merlot to protect. Of, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I was just going to be like, oh my God, don't bring it up. 
Well, Gary, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show. Um, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I think your insights are um, things that, you know, business people in and out of the wine industry can really take away. And um, it, let's just have a, have a water toast because I know it's still morning, but <laughs> great to see you. Uh, I have a, oh, oh, I need one. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> Tell Mike. And we thank you on the show. It's been my Thanks pleasure. Cheers. <laughs>